for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Okay, the teaching text today is from John 5, verses 1 through 9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. This is the word of God for the people of God. Be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Welcome. Hi, John. Hey, I'm so pleased that you're here. I don't know if it's when the Sooners lose you feel more inclined to come to church. Uh, (laughs) Too soon, too soon. I don't care. The truth is I just learned they lost. I don't know what happened with OSU yesterday. I don't care about sports. Sorry. They had a bye. Great. Even better. Well, welcome. I hope that you're coming in and you're well. I hope that you are among friends. Maybe you're here. I met a couple of you this morning and first time or first-ish times, and so blood pressure may be elevated a bit being in a room of strangers. I don't know if you're here and you believe the things that we believe. Maybe you totally and vehemently disagree with us. I just want to say I don't think anybody is here by mistake. I think the Holy Spirit has been at work drawing us in toward each other and into the Lord Jesus. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, you're welcome and you're wanted, and I'm glad that you're here. So we've been in this text in John 5 for the last couple of weeks, and I've been doing, I don't know if you've caught on with the signs that we've put up the last couple of weeks. They're meant to draw triangles, okay? So we've been talking through, I want to give you a quick uh, review that There are different ways of relating to the world, different lens through which we see the world, even orientations through which we might see the world. One of these orientations is, I'm calling it a victim's orientation. I'm not suckering anyone to being my helpers this morning. I've I've victimized enough people by standing here and holding signs. But one of these is a victim's orientation to the world. The way that a victim sees themselves in the world is they're always focused on problems. Uh, They only see things that are wrong or could go wrong. And perpetually focused on problems affects their inner state. And their inner state looks a lot like anxiety. And all the people said, amen. So many of us struggle with this. And perpetually focused on problems and having an inner state that's constantly anxious, says anxiety. It affects the way that we behave, and our behavior looks a lot like fighting, taking flight, or freezing. 
And this is a really, really frustrating place to live. Many of us sleepwalk through this kind of life. We're always focused on problems, we're always anxious on the inside, and we're always reacting in some way that doesn't solve the problem in the first place. Now, there's another way of relating to the world. I'm calling it the image bearer's orientation. Other people have called it the creator's or the co-creator's orientation. And the image bearer's orientation to the world is, is um, different than the way that a victim relates to the world. Though both of them deal with challenges, the way that an image bearer, a creator, a co-creator relates to the world is their focus is on vision and outcomes. Vision and outcomes. They're, they're pursuing a positive picture of the kind of life they feel like God is inviting them into. Their inner state looks very different than the inner state of the person who's constantly focused on what's wrong. Their inner state looks a lot like passion. They're, they're feeling passion stir up in their own hearts as they begin to imagine living into the future that God has for them. And that has effect, an effect on their behavior. Their behavior looks like they're taking baby steps toward that future. Now, you can't get there all in one big leap or through one day of a good cup of coffee and read the Bible and really, you know, a lot of motivation. They're, they're in, the, in for the slow and steady work of moving toward that positive vision. Now, when Jesus asks this guy who's had a 38-year ailment, do you want to be well? He's offering him the chance to be more than just physically healed. He's offering him the chance to move from one paradigm of experiencing the world primarily as a victim into another one. And I have just come to believe that this kind of shift is as big as moving from death to life. And those of you who are in catechesis or have gone through catechesis, in question 12, we're learning what does it mean to repent. The last line says, I need God's help to make this change. And to make this change of moving from victim to a creator or an image bearer, to letting go of a world always focused on problems to a world of, that's open to possibilities, as God opens up this world before us, is a move from death to life. We need God's help to make this change. The Lord Jesus is inviting this man into a new kind of way of relating to the world. Sorry, I want to see you guys, so I can't have that up. Did I plan this part of the service? No, I did not plan this part of the service. What should we talk? It's, wait, it's a magic trick. <laughs> I really like it when you guys laugh and I'm not totally sure why. <laughs> so I want to add another paradigm to this whole conversation of the move from victim to creator, victim to image bearer. The, the, the thing that I want to talk about is when Jesus asked this question, do you want to be well, it'd be really easy to take that question and then lump it into a therapeutic context that's like, just like lump it into the whole self-care movement that a lot of people are talking about, a lot of really good things related to the self-care movement. But I think that's missing a big part of what Jesus is trying to do here. I want to emphasize that Jesus' offer and Jesus' question, do you want to be well, is more than self-care. It's an invitation into a life of purpose. The kingdom way of being well is marked by joining Jesus in making all things well. 
Okay, now a really important thing to keep in mind as we read the Gospels, we're in John chapter 5, have been for the last couple of weeks. An important thing to keep in mind, a hermeneutic for reading the Gospels, a key to unlocking uh, what's in there, is that everything that Jesus says, everything that Jesus does, he does in the company of his disciples, his apprentices. If you've ever been an apprentice of someone else, you watch them so you can learn from them how to do what they do. And so everything that Jesus does is instructional. He's mindful that other people are watching him, and he's trying to demonstrate them a manner of being in the world that they should adapt for themselves. Dallas Willard said, if I'm Jesus' disciple, that means I am with him to learn from him how to be like him. And just as the disciples were present with Jesus, so we are among the disciples as we watch him being his brilliant self and learning from him how we can be like him. And the way that Jesus has chosen to conduct himself in John chapter 5 is instructional for us. The text tells us in John chapter 5 that Jesus is in Jerusalem at the time of a festival. It's possible that millions of people are in the city of Jerusalem. And he goes to this pool, the pool of Bethesda, where it could be dozens, it could be hundreds of people that are there. I don't know the answer. And you think, if, this is a, if Jesus really wanted his ministry to be a practical, a conventional success, this is a great springboard opportunity. All of these people are in the city. He could go to the Temple Mount and gather a big crowd there. He could really begin to make a name for himself. If he wanted to be successful, if he wanted to make a big difference, he could have done it. But what does Jesus do instead? He quietly enters the city. He goes to this kind of obscure corner, the pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate. Is this a pagan healing site? Is it a Jewish mikvah? Are they washing the sheep here? We don't really know. Jesus enters the city. He heads for an obscure corner. He finds the one lame man who he heals and then he leaves without leaving a calling card. He doesn't wait for credit. He doesn't wait to heal everybody in Jerusalem, and he also doesn't heal everybody that's here at the pool, the pool of Bethesda. He doesn't make a big speech. As Americans, we think this is a wasted opportunity. Jesus doesn't prize big events or big wins or making a big difference in the same winning, obsessed way that all of us do the way that we would handle ourselves in a situation if we had the power that he had. And he didn't even seem particularly concerned with everyone making sure that he's the one that got credit for the big thing that he did. What I so appreciate about Jesus and consistent with the rest of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus models for us a ministry of noticing people, a ministry of seeing people, of seeing them. So we go to the beginning of our Bibles, we see that ours is a God who characteristically sees us. God saw Abram and Sarai in their childless state and they're getting older and they want kids and God sees them in that longing. Some of you are in that place and God sees you in your longing too. God saw them and he blessed them. God saw Hagar when Abram and Sarai tried to shortcut God's promises coming to fruition. And as she was on the run, having been expelled from the covenant family, God said, I see you. And she named God. The first person to name God was a woman in the scriptures and said, surely you are the God who sees me. 
In Exodus, we see how God saw the Israelites in their captivity. God saw the prostitute Rahab. God saw the foreigners and the poor when he instructed the Israelites to leave the corners of your fields unharvested so those people could find something to eat themselves. God saw the woman Hannah in her longing for a child and God gave her Samuel. God saw the widows, Naomi and Ruth. God saw David. God saw Naaman the Syrian. God saw the widow at Zarephath. The psalmist in Psalm 8 talks about how God, isn't this amazing, has seen all of humankind. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? In the coming of the Messiah, we see how God saw Mary and Joseph. God saw Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth. God saw Hannah, who had been a widow since she was a young woman and spent decades praying and fasting in the temple waiting for the revelation of the Messiah. God saw that old man Simeon who took baby Jesus into his arms and blessed him and said, Now, Lord, you can dismiss your servant in peace. God saw Simeon. God saw the shepherds. God saw those foreign astrologers, the wise men. Jesus saw Mary of Magdalene oppressed as she was, saw the fishermen Peter and Andrew and James and John, saw Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. He saw Simon the zealot, the insurrectionist. He saw Nathaniel and Thomas and the others. Jesus saw that scandalous woman at the well. He saw all of those lepers from whom everyone else ran away. He saw the couple at Cana whose party ran out of wine and he covered their shame by providing for their needs. Jesus saw Nicodemus, though he was so ashamed to come to Jesus, he came at night, but he felt seen by Jesus. Jesus saw the centurion with faith. He saw the boy with the meager offering, the fish and the loaves. He saw the woman caught in adultery. He saw Mary and Martha in their grief. Even when he was a crowd, he saw the woman who touched the hem of his garments and he knew that power had come out from him and he didn't want her to walk away feeling unseen. Even on the cross, Jesus saw his mom and he was concerned for her and he entrusted her to John, the beloved disciple. He saw those people from the cross who mocked him and were rolling the dice to, to like wager for his clothing. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God in the scriptures has shown us that ours is a God who sees us. And we see this most clearly in the incarnation of Jesus who saw people and people felt seen by him. To be truly seen is more than to be just looked at. There are lots and lots of people in our world who are seen. Sometimes people even pay to see them, to look at them, but they don't feel seen by anybody. To be truly seen, greater than being looked at, is to be validated. It's to be taken seriously. It's to be appreciated as an image bearer. Y'all have heard this quote from Lewis from White of Glory. He said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit.
immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Now, this does not mean that we must be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Our world is like a mobile pool of Bethesda. Everywhere that people gather, whether it's at the grocery store or they gather on your social media feed or your high school or even in the church, every one of us comes with our unique burdens. Every one of us comes with the unique difficulties uh, that we bear, the vulnerabilities that we bear because of our own life experience. We have our own illnesses or ailments, our own fears and pains, our own worries and wishes. And every one of us just wants to be seen. Every one of us wants to be known. Every one of us wants someone to take seriously the good and the bad within us. And some of us want to find help to deal with the unique burdens of our experience of being a person. I've said it before, and it resonates with people because you know it's true. You have no idea the difficulties that people to your right and left are going through. We have little idea of the pains, the frustrations, the deep longings, the prayers that feel like they've not been answered for years, borne by the people on your left and your right. I've also said before, you're a greater than average attractive group of people too. You walk in and people appear to have life together, to have smiles, but you just have no idea how fragile the people around you really are. The problem is that too few of us who have been seen by Jesus, who have been loved by Jesus, who have received His kindness, who have been rehabilitated by His mercy, too few of us join Him in the ministry of seeing people. Though we're believers, we operate within this victim's orientation to the world, always waiting on everyone else to see us and failing to shift in the image bearer's orientation to the world in joining Jesus in truly seeing others, joining Him in His work. And we can do this work with Him confident that He still sees us. He knows us. He loves us. He tends to our needs. The language of image-bearing, of course, comes from Genesis chapter 1. In the image of God, He made them. Male and female, He made them. And to be created in God's image is like to rule over creation as God rules over us. We're meant to take an owner's mentality. and An owner's always watching. My, My dad and I had lunch at Arnold's in West Tulsa. For some of you, you've never been, you've got to go to Arnold's. They used to have the location right off of I-44. Now they're in the shopping center a little further down on West 33rd Street. Ooh, the burger was good. Peppery. Onion rings, Ben. But Dad and I had lunch. And we were, Dad was commenting on the owners of Arnold's. Lunch was just slammed. The owners were walking around wiping tables the whole time. Owners are greeting people, wiping tables, making sure the next person's got a place to be, and they did it so joyfully, and they were so relaxed. I really loved it. I remember the first time I met Todd Hunter, who's the bishop of our our Anglican diocese, which is called Churches for the Sake of Others. 
And I remember I was watching Bishop Todd from a distance, and Todd had a smile on his face, and he was hugging people, and he was picking up trash everywhere he went. I thought, I'm in the right spot. He had an owner's mentality. He was reflecting his capacity, his authority as one made in the image of God. You're bearing God's image in seeing other people. The kingdom way of being well is marked by this kind of restored image bearing. Where we're no longer waiting on everyone else to tend to our needs and to see us and validate us. But having been seen and validated and known and loved and tended by the Lord, we can join Him in the ministry of seeing other people. Restored image bearing is demonstrated by joining Jesus in a cross-carrying, others-seeing pattern of life. Now, there have been numerous books that have come out in recent years. One of them that stands out is Radical by David Platt, which kind of makes you feel like you're really bad if you don't move to, you know, a, a sketchy neighborhood or do something really big and bold for Jesus. It really strikes me that when Jesus is, is talking about this ministry of seeing other people, it's a ministry of ordinary faithfulness. The examples of what it looks like to be a person who truly joins him in the ministry of seeing is very, very earthy. You could go to this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? At the most fundamental level, what does it mean to join Jesus in the ministry of seeing people? Could it be as simple as how we treat the people we don't like very much and even just saying hi to the folks around us? Jesus says that these things matter. You know when you walk into a room and no one greets you. It doesn't feel very good. You know the difference that it makes. I know when, in talking to folks who've worshipped with our church, like in evaluating whether that was good, of course there's a certain question about like the music or the teaching, but the number one question on everyone's mind is, did anybody talk to me? And it makes me really sad at times to have conversations with people and they're like, yeah, I've been here for like two months and nobody has said a word to me. Or I've been here for a really long time and no one's like asked the second question. It's always just the, hey, how's it going? Smile, assuming familiarity, but never doing the work that comes with getting a family attitude toward each other. Jesus says to those who follow him, join me in the ministry of seeing other people by greeting them. Now, here's how not to do a good Jesus gospel greeting. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Instead, the ministry of seeing is about validating. It's about taking seriously, man, this is is a person made in God's image. So when you're in a room of, of crowded people or whether you go in the grocery store, it's stopping to appreciate this is a human being that's standing in front of me. This is one for whom Christ died, and our lives have aligned in this moment. So stop and see them. Sometimes it's appropriate to introduce yourself. Um, I was so proud. She's not in here, but, and I didn't plan this, but the other day, um, my daughter, she's 11, was on the street, and uh, her cousin and a friend from the street both showed up in our yard at the, at the same time. I don't know how on earth it happened that we got the party house because Emily and I are not party people. But like ours is the place to be, you know, if you're like 7 to 11. (laughs) 
And I loved watching my daughter say, hey, uh, this is, you know, Amelia, this is my cousin Ella. Ella, this is my friend Amelia. It's like, way to go, Libby. It's just introducing yourself, seeing people, introducing yourself, uh, connecting with them. I think in a church context, especially if Cornerstone's your home church, say, hey, my name is this, let me introduce you to somebody else. It's immediately making them a part of community or family. I think that when you can do it, it's always great to invite someone toward a next step. And on a Sunday morning, a really great question is, especially if you've met someone who's newer to the community, is just to say, hey, are you sitting with anybody? Oh, will you come sit with us? That's like all of the difference in the world. If you send your kid to elementary school and somebody says that to your kid in the elementary school, you are the happiest parent on planet Earth. And we want to join Jesus in that kind of practical ministry of seeing by just inviting others into the most basics of relationships, to stop, to see, introduce, inquire, learn about them, connect them with others, invite them, and as you can, bless them. I, I love my dear mother here. I have been impersonating my mother all of my life. And, and sometimes, one of the ways that I might, Mom, I don't know if this is you or not, but I always, a couple of years ago, I just started saying, God bless you, in like a silly kind of way. And I've just kept saying it. And now I'm saying it for real. And this is the line between me and my mother. Like, it's so blurred. I, like, I, am I imitating her or am I just my mother? I don't know. <laughs> but when you end a conversation, in some way, to bless them. I've been saying God bless you to people because I want God to bless these people. You might want, not want to do that to the, you know, the checkout person in the grocery store. But just say, hey, I hope you have a really good day. It's good. Bless people. Whether you see folks at the church or in the grocery store, leave people wondering why you were so delightful toward them. Hebrews. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Jesus says, greet people, even the people who you don't know. Another really practical way that Jesus invites us into the ministry of seeing people has to do with our social calendar. This is Jesus and Luke. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, does Jesus mean that you can't have friends that you invite over? No. Jesus spends most of his time with his friends. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole to make a point, a big point, to, to create space in your social calendar for people that are not on your favorites list. And in particular, to make space for those people who are not often invited to stuff. People who don't have the kind of social capital who, if you give to them, will be able to bless you in return. Give to those people who can't, who can't one-up you in honoring you or giving you social clout. And Jesus evidently did this to, in, to such a degree that he got a reputation among some as a bad reputation. Matthew said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is eating and drinking so well among a crowd of ill repute that he got a bad reputation for it. I like Eugene Peterson, who uh, in his own terms describes what constitutes a real church. 
The things you need for a real church, number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, people that you wouldn't normally hang out with. Make space in your social calendar for the people who can't up your social clout. Now, here's the thing. Nobody wants to feel like a project. Have you ever felt like a project before to someone? Or some of you who are married now, your like boyfriend then, they were like evangelism dating you, and evidently they won. but nobody wants to feel like a project. Suddenly in our church, anyone who gets invited to anything is like, oh, great, you're doing this out of religious obligation. You think this lowly of me. People feel like projects when we in our hearts think of them as victims. They feel like projects when fundamentally we don't take them all that seriously and we take ourselves so very seriously. They feel like projects when that's the case. They can smell it on us. But if we take other people seriously, if we treat them with the image-bearing dignity they have, they can smell that on us too. They don't feel like victims. They just feel valued. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be best friends with absolutely everyone and have no social boundaries. Jesus had social boundaries. He had time in his schedule and in his heart and in his life for the stranger and for the crowds. He had the 72 with whom he had some kind of relationship. He had the 12, he had the 3, and at least John said that he was Jesus' best friend. I don't know if Jesus returned to that, but it got in the Bible. Sometimes that happens. Jesus had his circles. It's okay for us to do the same as well. But there's a tension that we actively need to manage between friendships, and friendships are so, so important, and hospitality, which is making space for other people in our life. There's a tension to be aware of for the, you know, almost 400 or so of the folks in our church who are in an apprentice group. Like, I hope that your group gets to be so close that you count each other dear friends. But if you get to the point of being so close that you are closed off to other people, you have no time or space or energy or relational capital for anyone else, you've just become a clique. And that good thing has been loved too much to the point of growing sour. That's why every couple of years it's really good to shake things up and to go start another group, to go join another group. It helps to keep us in the ministry of seeing other people. Now, I am annoyed, as I often am, that I don't have time to speak a lot longer. Uh, I'd love to take you to Isaiah 58 and talk about joining Jesus in the ministry of seeing uh, for the sake of justice, uh, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, uh, the prisoner. But I want to ask, like, what is the impetus for joining Jesus in the ministry of seeing other people? What motivates us to see others, to greet, to make space in our heart, in our life for other people? This is Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Some of us who have been loved by Christ continue to live for ourselves as Christians. And the Lord Jesus invites us in our own journey of learning to be well into a ministry of seeing other people. 
Paul says, because he died for all, from now on we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. This is one for whom Christ died. This is one made in God's image. This is one that Jesus takes seriously. Therefore, I can no longer regard them from a worldly point of view. All of this, says Paul, is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is estranged parties coming together. And since humanity has been estranged from God as a result of our self-centered rebellion against him, so he's invited us into this ministry of reconciliation, making into friends those who were strangers, making into family those who were separated. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Teresa of Avila said, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands which with he blesses the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes which with, which with he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. So may God, who's so worked in our lives to convince us of his great love for us, now work even more that we might join him in the ministry of reconciliation, ministry of friendship, the ministry of hospitality. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the ways in which you've treated us as a friend who was your enemy. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for your patient love and your enduring love toward us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would so work in our lives, not just that we love you with our minds or with our hearts, but we love you in the way that we relate to our neighbors and our family and strangers and people who can do nothing for us. Lord Jesus, may we faithfully be your body on earth. May we faithfully bear the vulnerabilities of this world just as you bore our vulnerabilities on the cross. Now I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be with us as we come to the table. Pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. As we eat it, would you fill us again with your presence and with your power and give us the capacity to relate to others as you've so graciously related to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.